and welcome to Croy, to a Shot in the Arm podcast. This is our daily podcast from Yvette and me reporting on the major science. Hi, Yvette. Hi, Ben. How are you? I am good. And we are also joined by our fantastic guest of the day, friend of the pod, <laughs> Professor Monica Gandhi from UCSF and head of Ward 86 at the San Francisco General Hospital. Hi, Monica. Hi, good to see you both. Yeah. It is so good to see you and catch up with you. Well, the conference has absolutely kicked off. Um, a lot of presentations, a fantastic opening ceremony that we're going to come back to in a little bit. But, um, Monica, the purpose of this podcast is to get your thoughts on how all the science is coming together. Are we seeing a singularity around the way we manage old, current and new pandemics? Yes, you know, the way I would put that all together is that what happened in HIV medicine is biomedical advances saved the day, right? So we had a really, really sad and and difficult start to the epidemic. It, a lot of the, even the opening ceremony spoke of, of the tragedy of what it felt like before we had antiretroviral therapy. And then fundamentally, we got antiretroviral therapy in the mid-90s, and then we had a very slow start in terms of global equity to antiretroviral therapy. So Europe and the U.S. were doing fine and had these great therapies, and then we were completely amiss in sort of achieving global equity to ART. And then we had the morning talk this morning from PEPFAR about how important it was to distribute and clearly make these equitably applied. And when I think about COVID, the same thing actually, that COVID, fundamentally what's going to fix pandemics is biomedical advances. The COVID vaccine and therapeutics change the face of COVID. And one thing I'd say from the lessons of HIV is we should celebrate them more. We're all sort of acting like like we're still where we were in 2020 sometimes, and I don't believe that. I believe that once you get the biomedical advances, life goes back to normal, and we're still masking here at this meeting. Um, but, <laughs> but it's the same thing, like this idea that let's celebrate those advances, embrace the vaccines, and then fundamentally make them globally yeah. available. And yeah, that's and what we didn't do. Yes, and it's exactly what I would like to say as well, is that it's the same with HIV. The lessons, we learned them, but we, we're not implementing them. You cannot say the vaccines are working, but you insist people continue wearing a mask. So you actually contradicting your messaging and you're getting people to question science. That's what I think too. So in this country, more than anywhere else, we were very polarized about public health measures in the U.S. And what we could have done is say, take the vaccine, life goes back to normal. They did that in Denmark. They did that many places. Here, because of the polarization and politicization, life went back to normal in some places, didn't go back to normal in our blue areas. And I think that saying that these biomedical advances take them and you're, and life, why do we want to be together? Because we need to be together. Yes. It's part of human connection. And so I agree that that was... It's interesting to see that at Croy, to see that strict masking policy when we all submitted vaccination requirements, we're all vaccinated. So um, that's one thing I call harm reduction, but like that's what, that, what how I would think about HIV did it in a way that, that in COVID, because of our politicization, we're not embracing the vaccines as much. It's belt and braces, isn't it? Yes, yes. We need both. Yes. But you said something interesting, and you've, you've said this before, uh, 
what's going to save us are biomedical advances. Yes. Now, for so many years in the HIV movement, we were saying it's biomedical and it's structural, it's social. But what you're basically saying is that biomedical is the starting point. So in COVID, it's different. COVID didn't, though there were clearly inequities in COVID, everyone was equally susceptible to COVID-19. And that wasn't true in HIV. And so once you get the biomedical advances, the idea that life goes back to normal, what happened with HIV is that biomedical advances were not, um, were the we couldn't apply them sometimes because of structural barriers. We couldn't apply because of systemic racism, because of systemic issues with global equity. We couldn't apply them in the way we wanted to. And COVID-19, yes, the vaccines have not been equally available globally. But once they're there, the idea that life goes back to normal to me feels so um, motivating to take the vaccine. We had less vaccine uptake in this country than many other high-income countries. And I think it's because we polarize people. It wasn't just because people distrust the vaccines and because of misinformation. We polarize this entire process of COVID-19. We close schools longer in some areas. We close businesses longer in some areas. That created anger and resentment. Yes, uh, I mean we 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 can see that, and and particularly in countries like in, in Africa, where schools stayed open for stayed closed for a long time. One of the things that we saw there is that not only was it a problematic for mothers, but also more and more young people did not go back to school when schools reopened. And that is some of the things that I'm still interested in. What happened to those young people who did not go back to school? Where are they? And what was the damage of COVID-19? And, and it's, it's something that we're really not talking about. Is we you you talk about the synergies and some of the things we could listen, uh, we could think about. But imagine nobody's talking about the COVID orphans, the children who were left without their parents. Yeah, I think it's the school especially. I always think about the statistic of adolescent girls every two minutes, <clears throat> right, being infected with HIV. Well, part of that is being out of school was extremely difficult for young women. Uh, in India, I was in India recently, the, if you had online school, the computer and one computer in your house or one phone was given to the male of the family, was given to the son and not the daughter. And that inequitable aspect of school closures on women and girls, I think we have to watch that over these this next time. I did write a book, it's called Endemic, it's coming out on July 11th, 2023, and it's about this aspect of balancing the infection with the needs of society, with using the phrase harm reduction, which we used in HIV. We try to minimize harm of our interventions and by celebrating biomedical advances with vaccines and therapeutics. It's really the fundamental text of the book. I, I want to come back to schools for both of you. Um, I remember a conversation I had with now Biden's um, global women and gender ambassador, Gita Rao Gupta, who reminded me that we had agreed that the most important intervention that you could possibly do in HIV prevention was making sure that girls in Africa remained in school. And then here we are managing COVID through uh, a process of closing the schools for many, for, for, for many years, for many months. For, 
um, for, for periods of time, uh, really difficult for parents, particularly mums. And Monica, you were very outspoken in the San Francisco Bay Area about school closures. Could you talk a bit about that? I was outspoken because we were, um, like many blue regions of the country, we kept our schools long, uh, closed longer than, than red states. The issue was that that wasn't a leftist position. In Scandinavia, which is a leftist place, they, were, they opened the schools within six weeks. It actually was the leftist idea that the vulnerable need school, that the poor need school, that, that you just because you're rich and can send your child to private school, that public schools needed to be open for low-income children. And that became a codified um, political aspect of our, our, our COVID-19 response in the United States, where blue states were more rigid and closed schools and red states weren't. And yet that isn't along any principle that that's, protects the poor. So I think that we became very political because Trump was the president when COVID started and he encouraged opening of schools and suddenly everyone changed their mind because it was a reactionary stance against Trump. This is, we can't do this again, like moving forward, we can't make public health so political. And it was political with HIV as well. There's no doubt, but the left was on the side where we stayed, meaning we were all for harm reduction. We were all for, um, combating um, and helping the poor. Like that was a aspect of the left response to HIV and it wasn't so much as the left response to COVID. How did you see it, Yvette? Yes, I, I think uh, especially around, for me, it goes with the connection with HIV. So when you look at what happened in South Africa and one of the things that I stood up against was the fact that young people were actually locked down with some of their perpetrators and mm. the rapist was at home the poor children was at home and these kids did not have and uh, a space to to be safe in and what we also learned is that school be, is a safe space for, for for young women and girls and young women get a relief by not being at home sometimes and just being able to be children. So for me, that was very important. And my own organization you, uh, gave up, gave out sanitary towels, went to schools and gave, went to meet where young people were playing, gave them stuff that they used to get at school. And you talk about in, in inequality, some young people and some children get food from school. That's the only place where they get a meal from. And that was taken away from, from them without really thinking about it. Yes. And that's true for the U.S. It's certainly true for the U.K. My <clears throat> sister is a teacher, a frontline worker, who was teaching in bubbles during the, the period of, of, uh, of, of COVID lockdown and, and providing education to the kids of essential workers. Um, and for many folks the meal that they got at school was one of the only nutritious meals of the day they got. Yeah. So the other big question for me, Monica, coming back to this idea of the sort of emerging singularity of pandemic re responses is MBOX. And it's really good to see Croy covering that. Um, are there presentations you think we should be looking out for? And what's exciting you about um, data coming on MPOX here? So there is a special session tomorrow night, which is Tuesday night, and um, on MPOX. And I think that's going to be a very important session because several things come out of this. Number one, 
the incredible degree of severity that occurs with low CD4 count, people living with HIV. And if you think about um, MPOX, it's an orthopox virus, its cousin is smallpox. But smallpox and HIV never coexisted simultaneously. Smallpox was eradicated in 1980. The first descriptions of HIV were in 1981. doesn't mean we didn't have HIV before, but those were the first descriptions. So we don't know the interaction between orthopox viruses and HIV until now. Because now we have an orthopox virus, its cousin, smallpox's cousin, mpox, and it interacted with HIV during this global outbreak. And we saw more severe outcomes in people living with HIV, more prevalence of mpox in mm-hmm. people living with HIV. It was important. It was important to try to define that. And that severity uh, is, 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 makes me think that everyone with HIV living worldwide should have an mpox vaccine because if it sporadically comes up like Zika can come up, we never want people to be unprotected from mpox. So that I think is going to be the most important, one of the most important lessons from this meeting, especially since it's an HIV meeting. And then the second is the effectiveness of the vaccine, which it works. Genius vaccine works. It's not surprising that it works because mpox really only started happening once we stopped the global smallpox eradication campaign. But it's it works, and that that's good data here. Yvette, how have you seen MPOX um, in communities across Africa that um, APA have been working with? Uh, for for us it, in, in South Africa, really, really. L- I think that we only had one or two cases and the rest of Africa, there was a rise in those. And uh, fortunately, I mean, the like you said, the the vaccine works and there was access and people acted early on. And I think one of the things that I want to talk about is, ben, is just how um, gay men really dealt with the stigma earlier on because mm-hmm. it almost turned into some the same as HIV, some stigmatized disease where people did not want to take action because they did not look a certain way or they, they did not identify as a certain gender. And I want to just, uh, you know, say, send a big thanks to the communities in Africa and, and globally around how they dealt with the stigma around uh, MPOX. I'm enthused but also a bit terrified about your call for uh, every uh, gay man in MSM around the world to have access to the monkeypox vaccine, which I guess is sort of kept in the um, in the vaults of the U.S. somewhere. Um, but given what happened with COVID vaccines, um, what have we got to do, really, to make the advances that we're talking about here? Um, available to those who need them. I mean, it feels, again, back to this question of being driven by the science. We've got so much more to do. Well, the one thing, just going back to MPOX for one minute, is that there was glo- the global outbreak came down and it was essentially eliminated in most places, but it's still endemic in Western Central Africa. And the fact that the place where MPOX is endemic, because it's actually in rodent populations there, that the pla- that place those areas didn't get the vaccine. It just was just tragic. Like it was just so clearly emblematic of what happened with antiretroviral therapy and then fundamentally what happened with COVID vaccines. COVID vaccines, if you, yes, natural immunity works to COVID. Yes, like that's pretty definitive. But 
the reason to get a vaccine is to avoid a natural infection, which can make you very sick. We are going to need ongoing COVID-19 vaccination of older populations, no matter where you live, Mm -hmm. including Africa. And so the idea that we wouldn't have global equity to have booster vaccinations of older people yet and vulnerable people is is we're just recapitulating what happened with with HIV antiretroviral therapy. This is never going to go away. COVID-19 is always going to be with us. And we're going to need ongoing who needs boosters, who needs the therapeutics, and it's the vulnerable. And so we can't take this kind of, um, we have to remember what happened with HIV. We have to make these vaccines available. The WHO actually did try and the campaign didn't go where it should have because of the greed of rich countries. And to see that play out again, this is one chapter in this book I wrote, to see play out again what happened with antiretroviral therapy to hap- and, and happened again with COVID vaccines, I think is, and MPOX vaccines, is tragic. I can't, I can't believe we're doing this again. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> but we, we, have, we have one opportunity that we can't mask, and it's that Africa needs to produce its own vaccines. Yeah. And that we have an opportunity with the BioVac and all of those uh, interventions and the things that are happening with South Africa being part of the spaces, as well as India, part of the places that can produce vaccines. But we need to refuse to produce vaccines only to send them out of our our countries so that uh, the West can have access. We, our, our governments needs to really, really talk about that and really create a, a you know, space and some kind of negotiations with these organized uh, with the countries that they produce these drugs for. It's totally unfair and unethical for that method. That's matter. a very, very good point. India ended up really helping with antiquobal antiretroviral access, but why would it, um, why would India be giving anything to the West? Like, they, they have to keep their supply. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, but bringing this back to the scientific question, is it also unscientific not to vaccinate all those who need it? Um, you know, the idea of resistance, and theoretically, we had always feared that... Um, you know, if, if we weren't providing adequate access to ARVs, that we might see the emergence of resistance um, and that, you know, potentially that could go to a population level, as in, you know, some of these drugs not working anymore. And is the same true? Do you have that fear for COVID? Why is that? It is different. Anti- antimicrobial and antiviral resistance um, is enhanced by not, um, by inadequate exposure or low-level exposure to antivirals, like, you know, not taking the medication every day. But immunity works differently. We, we, I'm not worried, actually, about resistance um, because I don't think that the virus has become immune-evasive in terms of T-cell and B-cell immunity. The antibodies don't work as well. I'm more worried about that who is most at risk of COVID-19. There was this Lancet 30 million person study that showed after two doses, older people, those on immunosuppressants and those with five comorbidities are still very much at risk for COVID. They will need ongoing booster vaccinations. And so you can't, just because a lot of people have been exposed to COVID worldwide, I think there's an estimate that maybe 85% of people have seen COVID worldwide. You will have some immunity. But if you're older, your immunity wanes. You need boosters. And so I think the way to think about COVID-19 is that vulnerable people 
including probably people with HIV with lower C4 countable, need ongoing booster vaccination, which means it's not over, it'll never be over, and we need to provide COVID vaccines worldwide. So, yeah, we've, th that I think has been one of the um, underlying themes of the last day. We've all been talking fantastic. We were back together, we're talking science, but how do we get it to the people who need it? That, that's the big, big question. Um, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, Yvette, as our, as our co-host, but also superstar, breakout superstar of uh, Croy 2023, your presentation last night in the opening plenary. Um, and you had really emphasized the importance of acknowledging the leadership of women and girls. And I know it's a topic that's really key to both of you. It was excellent, by the way. Your, your you talk so was riveting. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, my talk was driven, one, by just to bring in women. One of the biggest issues that we have, and I think we have in science, is science doesn't recognize the role women played and the role that we are still playing in getting us where, to where we are. Women always had to con have to convince our communities. We are the ones who do social mobilization. Uh, a few weeks ago, I just said to some people, I don't want us to only do social mobilization. I don't want you to think I'm just here to bring my community. I bring much more than just that. So for me, last night, Brian was bringing all these women that you've met across the world as you were traveling as a young person, finding out about HIV was for the, us to bring them into the room, to recognize them because erasure is a real thing. If I did not do what I did last night, some people would have forgotten Joanna Ngala, would have forgotten Prudence Mabele, would have forgotten Cindy Van Sale. And I say this with my chest, that Cindy Van Sale is even bigger than Bruce Richmond when it comes to the project U equals U. And I say it because she did it. She had over a million followers and she was the one who did U equals U work in South Africa. And we are not recognizing that. Sorry, Comrade Bruce, but yeah, it <laughs> is the truth. <laughs> it was, it, the reason her talk was so amazing, I think is that you're right, like women are the substrate of society and they have done so much during this pandemic of HIV and yet been so not recognized. And that's that's a bizarre twist that like they are, I mean, increasingly on the stage, but much less so than they, they should have been. Yes, and everybody expected me to be excited to be the only woman, the only black person on that stage. And I was not happy. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's something wrong with wanting to always be the only one, the first one. For me, that was like... No, man, this has been our space forever. Yeah. And we were just waiting for the right moment and the right person to be there who's not afraid. By the way, I'm not afraid of anything. So I know the risk of what I said yesterday, but I also know that it hit home. When I got off that stage, Dr. Fauci, every person was like, Yvette, you brought th that thing home. It and we did. understand. It did. You said that there's such thing as righteous anger. That's right. That's right. That's why you speak out. You said I spoke out about schools in the Bay Area. That was hard to do, actually. Mm. But I was angry. It seemed really unfair. And so you inspired me last night that, that Thank you. maybe it was okay. So as we look at the conference and data that's going to come out that's very specific for girls and women, particularly in Africa. Anything that you're, you're interested in that we should keep our eye out on? 
I mean, I just went to this doxy pep session, <laughs> so I was just going to go back after this. I was disappointed to see um, the high rate in the in the doxy pep study in Kenya among cisgender women, the high rate of STDs, how high they were. Probably many of these women could be sex workers because they were all on prep, and yet the doxy was not effective for uh, STD prevention. I get really worried when we start explaining like saying it's biologic, because that sounded a lot like why tenofovir, people thought tenofovir didn't work. And it wasn't biologic, it works in women. So I don't want people to think, oh, it's the mucosa, it's the vagina, it's the, let's let's just like really confirm what's happening, what kind of stigma it was to take doxy, were people taking it, like what will work for this population, because we need to reduce STDs. So I think that was an important and and concerning abstract that should make us work harder. Um, yes, and and for me, I think I I just need to comment around the the presentation this morning. I w- went to Dr. Nkenka Song's presentation, and I just feel there was such a shortage of the mention of communities and the role that we play. And I think that was a missed opportunity. Good point. I'm looking forward to seeing the solar data on uh, CAB-LA um, extended dosage uh, periods in girls and women in Africa. So that's that's on my book. Every eight weeks, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing, shout out to you, Monica, is that you're presenting some data tomorrow, I think. Yes. And it's a, also around cab but it's with marginalized populations sort of on the, on the, uh, on the, the outer reaches of society, right? Yes, so I'm the medical director of the Ward 86 HIV clinic in San Francisco. Historic 40-year anniversary this year, this month. Um, But we treat a population that is a third marginally housed. We all know what's going on with homelessness in San Francisco. High rates of substance use, methamphetamine mainly, and high rates of mental illness during this time, of COVID especially. And we wanted to use long-acting cabotegavir and ropivirine in this patient population, even though it's only been studied in patients who are virologically suppressed, doing well, can take oral ART, the perfect people. Um, but it's hard in this day and age to to take oral antiretroviral therapy sometimes when you have all these systemic barriers. So we gave long-acting cabotegavir and to many patients who are viremic, who had never been suppressed, who couldn't take oral ART for very fair and and, and, and understandable reasons. And we had a very high success rate uh, oh, wow. in this population. So um, LA cabotegravir and ropivirine has not been put on WHO treatment guidelines. I'm worried about that. That, yet. that concerns me yet. It ha- I think it has to happen. But I think part of the reason is that it's only been studied in populations where it's easy for people to get it and take it. And they knew how to take oral ART and they had fewer barriers. We need to show increasingly that even with lots of other barriers, long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine will help you get to virologic suppression, and that's what we're trying to do with this study. Well, we'll be sure to report on it. Yvette, any final thoughts as we wrap up today's podcast? No, I'm, I'm going to look for any session right now, Ben, that talks about the ring, because I also think that's the unspoken thing that people don't want to talk about so that we can amplif- amplify it. Women are continuing being part of studies and I think it's only fair that we amplify that. Like you said yesterday, it's choice. Like just give a choice and prevention options, right? Yeah. 
Well, I guess that's it then for this episode. Monica, we should let you get back to the sessions. That's what we're here for, after all. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. And um, can I make a plug that you join the podcast again when you're ready to talk about your book as it yes, goes live? Yes, City Arts and Lectures launched. in San Francisco is going to launch it, so um, or have an event, so we'll talk then. All right. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us Good today. Good to see you. Thank and you. And have a great day. Thank you. Thanks.